Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Robert Whitaker. Robert Whitaker is the author of the books Mad in America, The Mapmaker's Wife, and On the Laps of Gods. His newspaper and magazine articles on the mentally ill and the pharmaceutical industry have garnered him a George Polk Award for medical writing and a National Association of Science Writers Award for Best Magazine Article. He was also the finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 1998 for his Boston Globe series on the abuse of mental patients in research settings. Robert Whitaker is here on Health Watch today to talk about his new book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness in America. If you'd like to join the conversation here on Health Watch today, the number is 503-231-8187. Welcome to Health Watch, Robert Whitaker. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Will you start out your book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, uh, proposing that you uh, wrote this to solve a mystery. What, what exactly is the mystery? Well, the mystery is this, is, um, you know, over the past 20, 25 years, our country has really embraced the use of psychiatric drugs among children, adults, you know, for never a broader range of conditions. And this has been presented to us as a story of progress, that we're getting much better at diagnosing psychiatric conditions, getting more people treated, etc. And indeed, we've spent, um, the, the amount of societal spending on drugs has gone up from around $800 million in 1987 to more than $40 billion today. But here's the mystery. As this has happened, as this increased drug use has happened, the number of people on government disability due to mental illness has soared. It has increased, um, it's increased from 1.25 million adults in 1987 to more than 4 million adults in 2007. So that's a tripling in the number. And if you look at the number of children on disability due to mental illness, it rose from around 16,200 children in 1987 to more than 600,000 children today. So the obvious puzzle or mystery is this, is why as we use these medications more and more are we seeing such a rise in disability? Is there an association? Well, what's interesting about uh, this book, we've had a lot of guests on Health Watch that have talked about alternatives to psychiatric medications or the downsides to psychiatric medications, but this is the first book I've come across that's tried to look at what are the long-term effects of taking the medications. We have a lot of studies on the short-term, and you're proposing that the long-term effects could actually be very different than the short-term effects. Yes. I mean, I think this really is the first book to tr truly try to assess how are we shifting, uh, how do these medications shape the long-term course of outcomes for, you know, people with these various diagnoses? And I, and I do that for schizophrenia, anxiety, depression, and bipolar disorder in the book. And even if you go to, to, the, if you go to the mainstream literature by people who in every way are believers in the medical model, uh, they'll say, boy, we really don't have any evidence that we're helping outcomes in the long term. Where is our evidence? And so that was the challenge in this book is to go to the literature and it's basically 50 years of outcomes literature and piece together a story of how the drugs do affect long-term outcomes. And when you do that, um, there's some variation within those diagnoses, but in, in, a, in a large way, what you see time and time again is an increase in the chronicity of the disorder. That means uh, sort of people two, three, four, five years and out are, are much more likely today to still be struggling with symptoms than they were in, the, say, the pre-drug era or unmedicated patients are today. So you see an increase in the, in the chronicity of the disorder, that's number one. Number two, you see uh, 
a fair number of people suffering other symptoms, you know, physical problems, some, maybe perhaps some cognitive problems with some of the drugs. Um, you'll see some increased psychiatric symptomatology sometimes. So, yes, what you see is drugs, you see this paradox, drugs that may be effective over the short term in helping to curb a, uh, a symptom of some sort, actually increasing, um, actually worsening in the aggregate long-term uh, outcomes. And that shows up time and time again. Well, it was interesting. I wonder if part of the issue is it's hard to follow people for such a long period of time to see these differences. Because I, I remember looking in, in your book at uh, the number of psychotic episodes for schizophrenics, medicated schizophrenics versus unmedicated. And I think, it, if I remember correctly, around two years, the difference is pretty small. But after four years, the unmedicated group are doing far better than the medicated you know, that study, Martin Harrow's study, is such a fascinating study because you're exactly right. Now, Martin Harrow uh, published those results in 2007, and what he did is he just followed a, a large group of people either with a diagnosis of schizophrenia or a milder psychotic disorder, and he follows them for 15 years. And everybody in the beginning is treated with medications, okay? And then it's just a naturalistic study, and he follows them up. But what is so interesting about this study is he follows them through time. So we see them at two years, as you said, then at four and a half, seven and a half, ten and fifteen, and he looks at how they're doing and whether or not they're using medications. And this was the first study ever for antipsychotics that gives you that long-term view and allows you to see how things progress over time. And you have it exactly right. After two years, there really isn't that much difference between the medicated and unmedicated group. But what happens is between year two and uh, year four and a half, the unmedicated group on the, on the whole continues to get much better. There's a lot of improvement, whereas the medicated group does not improve, such that by the four and a half year um, post, those off medication are doing dramatic, and you know, on the whole, doing quite a bit better than those on drugs. And you know, that is something that really the literature hasn't shown before, and, and it does tell how how so much of our scientific literature day is, is short-sighted. So drugs get approved for use because they yeah, curb a target symptom better than six weeks. And yet now, you know, people are on these drugs one year, two years, forever. And it can take a long time before this, these differences show up. Well, it's interesting to imagine that an antipsychotic could, in the long term, actually cause more psychosis. But one question I would wonder is, did this study control for... Um, severity of illness in the unmedicated versus the medicated. Could you argue that maybe the people who were medicated for longer had a worse disease to begin with? Great question. Now, what uh, if you read the article and what the what how Martin Harrow reports on it, he says, listen, what happened is among the schizophrenia group, it was the good prognosis patients who were more likely to get off meds. And so he's sort of saying what you're saying here. Perhaps the reason for the, be the better outcome is that it was just a, uh, a people with a milder diagnose, a milder sort of form of schizophrenia who got off, and that's the reason for the difference. Okay, so that's what the discussion says. But you actually, uh, you actually have to go into his data <laughs> because what what he has is he really has three groups of patients. Okay, he has good prognosis schizophrenia patients, he has bad prognosis schizophrenia patients, and he has milder. Uh, patients with a milder psychotic disorder, okay? Now, the good prognosis patients who got off meds did better than the good prognosis patients who stayed on meds. 
the bad prognosis patients who got off meds did better than the bad prognosis patients who stayed on meds. The milder psychotic disorders group that got off meds did remarkably better than the milder psychotic disorders who, who stayed on meds. So within these sort of different um, groupings by severity, time and time again, you see that it's the unmedicated group that did better. And even more compelling when you look at the data is that so at the beginning, obviously, those with milder psychotic disorders have a better prognosis than the schizophrenia group, by definition, right? Yet by the end of the study, the schizophrenia patients who got off medication were doing better than the milder psychotic disorders group that stayed on, and actually dramatically so. So that really raises the question of, I mean, that really sort of points to that the medications over the long term in the aggregate are iatrogenic agents that worsen the long-term course. And, 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 what, you, and what you mean by iatrogenic is caused by the, by the physician, correct? Well, in this case, caused by the drugs. Caused yeah. by the drug, yes. In other words, caused by the medical treatment. And, you know, here's the other thing here. I know this is so puzzling. It's, it's so contrary to everything we as a society know to be true. But if you actually look at um, the history of assessment of antipsychotics, as early as late 70s, um, there was worry that, in fact, antipsychotics were it, it causing changes in the brain that made the brain more biologically vulnerable to psychosis and actually worse psychotic symptoms over time. So that worry shows up, you know, 30 years ago. Um, and what you see in Harrow's study is, yes, it's those who stay on medications that are have a much higher, the percentage of people who are still psychotic at, say, the 10 and 15-year follow-ups periods are much higher in the medicated group than in the unmedicated group. And then there's even this, um, you know, there's sort of a biological explanation offered for, you know, why that is so. Um, and there was a guy named Philip Seaman who recently did some, uh, published a paper explaining, you know, this is the biology that makes the brain more vulnerable to psychosis once it's on drugs. So there's actually a puzzle that comes together. Well, Robert, I'd like to switch over now to antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications because what's really fascinating is what you're laying out here around schizophrenia and around antipsychotic drugs actually in in the anatomy of an epidemic seems to also hold true for antidepressants and anti-anxiety that if you look at people over the long term on antidepressants, they actually have more depressive episodes than someone unmedicated with getting other treatments for depression. Yes, and you know, this is surprising. I will be honest, I was surprised to see this. And the antidepressant story goes like this when you piece together this puzzle of how they affect long-term outcomes. As you find out that if you look at epidemiological studies um, before the use of antidepressants, is people regularly recovered from depression. In other words, it might, and we're even talking about hospitalized cohorts. It might take two months, might take four months, six months, eight months. But within eight, ten months, most people had recovered from their bout of depression that had landed them in a hospital. And then when you follow those people long-term, most have pretty good long-term outcomes of those hospitalized cohorts. So when antidepressants, because of that understanding of depression, when they were first introduced, uh, really in the 1960s and early 1970s, I mean, began to be used more widely. What physicians said is, well, listen, my people are going to get better. These drugs will help them get better faster. That was the idea. And then, sure enough, the next thing you notice is physicians are saying, psychiatrists are saying, boy, you know, my patients are getting better a little faster, but they're also now relapsing back into depression more quickly than before. 
So right away you see in the clinical uh, the clinician's perceptions a sense of antidepressants that are effective over the short term but are actually causing a change to a more chronic course over the long term. And you even see physicians saying, I'm worrying that we're changing this episodic illness into a chronic course. Anyway, you go forward. By nine, early 1990s, there's an Italian physician, Giovanni Fava, who's saying, well, I'm, I'm worried that these drugs are depressogenic over the long term. Uh, you hear uh, a famous researcher named Ross Baldessarini from Harvard Medical School saying, in essence, I'm worried about this too. We really need to investigate this. You see when the NIMH did a six-year study that compared the course of unmedicated depression to medicated depression, the unmedicated patients had a much uh, shorter-lived illnesses. Um, they, they didn't suffer the same deterioration in social status, job status. You see this time and time again in, in other naturalistic studies. So, yeah, it's, it's quite surprising, but what the story tells you is that uh, in the era of antidepressants, depression has changed from an episodic illness to a much more chronic illness. Um, and a chronic illness due to the administration of the antidepressant drugs. You know, that's certainly what it seems to be happening, yeah. So, and, um, and, you know, we just have a, a, a fame, the largest antidepressant trial ever conducted was called the star d trial and it had a follow-up that lasted one year and they and in that trial the stay well rate and in and stay well and among those that are also able to stay in the trial at the end of one year was the lowest recovery rate i've ever seen anywhere in a trial only three percent of the four thousand patients who entered that trial responded and stayed well and in the trial for as long as a year and that that was a study that people that some people are pointing to is Look at this. This this is a very. This seems to be a very depressogenic course. So you in in, in the anatomy of an epidemic, you purport that um, it seems like a reasonable uh, possibility that the huge rise in prescription drugs for mental illness is playing a, a direct and primary role in creating a rise in um, mental illness, medical disability. Are there any? Um, uh, competing theories that could compete for why we would see a tripling in the medical illness, mental disability in adults in such a short amount of time, or a 35-fold increase in, in childhood mental illness disability in 20 sure. years? There, there are some competing theories, and I think there are some contributing factors, right? By the way, what you really, when you look at the disability numbers, you, what you really have to ask is where are all the bipolar patients coming from? So bipolar used to be um, a fairly... Uh, rare illness, and the prevalence of bipolar in adult populations, say in 1960, were around one in 5,000. Now we're around one in 50. Bipolar outcomes have noticeably deteriorated in the last 30, 40 years. That's it's widely recognized in the medical literature. Employment rates have gone from around 75, 80 percent for those rare individuals that had it, down to about 33 percent today. Um, so what's really driving the disability rate numbers is the is the bipolar boom, and if and if you look at where all the bipolar patients are coming from, um, it's it's illicit drugs. That's one gateway. Uh, two, though, is the widespread use of stimulants and antidepressants. Antidepressants uh, do it's it's quite clear they increase the risk that someone will convert from unipolar depression to bipolar depression. So that's a a primary iatrogenic cause of this rise in disability. And you can chart that. But the other competing ideas are this. One is that um, as, uh, as, you know, in terms of a tough economic time, 
and as welfare became tougher to get, is some people um, were turning to disability, you know, for income support, and um, and therefore they basically went to psychiatrists and others, and, and not exactly feign illness, but you know, hope to turn whatever psychiatric distress they were suffering into a disability payment. So there's that thought, and I think there's some uh, some merit to that, although. A uh, recent paper said, a uh, recent paper on this phenomenon said that really didn't seem to explain the the rise at all. Um, and some people using their children for that purpose as well. So getting their children diagnosed so the you know poor families could get a payment. There's that thought. When you mentioned children, that seemed to be the most tragic uh, component of your book is the the rise in both the diagnosis and treatment of juvenile bipolar with. Um, and the co- possible cause from ADHD medications or uh, attention deficit medications. Yeah, I'm um, listening. I think what's happening to the kids is uh, uh, something so profound and such a, a moral question that our society needs to address. So, but juvenile bipolar disorder in, was almost never diagnosed in, in children under that weren't hadn't gone through puberty. You know, as little as 15, 20 years ago, and there's been like this. 50-fold increase by now in terms of the diagnoses. But it's not just an expansion of diagnostic boundaries. What you see is that children go on a, a stimulant, right, for ADHD, and when they look to see if that form of therapy helps those kids long-term grow up and thrive as adults, they haven't found that to be so. So they do not find long-term benefit. But the real risk is something like you know 25% of kids placed on a stimulant uh, today after a period of time, end up with a um, bipolar diagnosis. And part of that, a good reason is, stimulants can stir psychotic symptoms, they can stir mood swings, they can stir mania. So the, these sort of side effects or these direct effects in terms of the mood swings lend themselves to a diagnosis of juvenile bipolar disorder. The same thing with the use of antidepressants. Now, most antidepressants in pediatric populations weren't even shown to be effective over the short term. but Antidepressants, as I was just saying, can, can stir mania, can, can stir sort of mood instability, such that studies have found that um, within four years, 25% of children and youth, adolescents, uh, you know, prescribed an antidepressant, take it that long, will convert to bipolar. And over the course of 10 years, about half of those initially treated for depression will convert to bipolar. So you see here in, the, in that data these two pathways where in essence you take healthy children with some you know perhaps you know immediate problem and you convert them into bipolar patients which is seen as a lifelong disease or long lifelong disorder and then you look at how well these those the pediatric you know people end up in that category how are they responding to the meds well they end up don't respond well at the meds at all to the the bipolar meds so they end up with this sort of rapid cycling uh, sort of in extreme cases of bipolar disorder and are expected to do very poorly as adults. And, you know, they're put on these cocktails that include an atypical antipsychotic, and atypical antipsychotics are known to cause physical problems, some emotional disengagement. Um, there's recent study that showed that, uh, you know, it looks like they shrink the brain and that shrinkage is associated with functional impairment and cognitive decline. All these factors are associated with early death. And so really, if you look at this big picture, what you see is a form of, quote, medicine where you take that fidgety kid in, 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 you know, at an early age or you take that depressed adolescent 
you put them on a drug and next thing you know there's this possibility that they end up with this quote chronic condition that's going to lend itself to a very um you know difficult adult life so it's 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 a tragedy of extraordinary dimensions and um you know it's happening to hundreds of thousands of kids well most people who are who are seeking some sort of antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication uh, often are, are viewing it as if they have a chemical imbalance in their brain that they're correcting with the medication. And and one thing that you really parse out in your book is how much of that is really a wishful thinking and not based on any scientific data. Could you very briefly just touch on that for us? We only have a couple more minutes, but yeah, I, just, I would love to to acquaint our listeners with the idea. Yeah, yeah, I think this is really key because we have been told as a population that these drugs fix chemical imbalances and that they're like insulin for diabetes. And if that's so, that is a story of medical progress because it tells you you've identified something wrong with the brain and the drugs fix it. But actually when, when researchers look to see do people with uh, depression actually have low serotonin in the brain, they don't. Do people with uh, psychotic uh, um, disorders necessarily have overactive dopamine systems. They don't. And so you can read, for example, Kenneth Kendler. He's co-editor-in-chief of psychological medicine. He, in 2005, he writes an article summing up this long history of the search for chemical imbalances in patients. And he says, we've hunted for big, simple neurochemical explanations for mental disorders, and we have not found them. So what that means is we really don't know the biology of these uh, major mental disorders, whatever that biology may or may not be. That's number one. And two, then you have to ask, well, what do the drugs then do? And what you find uh, is that the drugs sort of perturb normal functioning in the brain. And in response to that perturbation, the brain undergoes these compensatory adaptations. And as the director of the NIMH in 1996, Stephen Hyman said, at the end of this adaptation, your brain is operating in a manner that is both qualitatively and quantitatively different than normal. So we in the American public have been led to believe that these are normalizing agents. And in truth, they are abnormalizing agents. And once you understand that, you can understand that why once you go on, coming off can be so difficult. It's because your brain is adapted to the drug. And at the same time, I think you can understand why, since they're abnormalizing agents, you might see a lot of problems with long-term use. Well, it's fascinating that we we seem to have uh, now decades worth of data on both short-term and now long-term uh, effects, but the prescribing of the medications doesn't seem to be based on the science at all. Nope, I think it's based on marketing. It's based on marketing and it's based on a certain storytelling that is told, that, that comes from storytellers in our society, which is obviously the pharmaceutical companies with their, um, you know, advertisements. Second, it's, it's pharmaceutical companies pay physicians, psychiatrists at prestigious academic centers, medical centers to be their spokesmen, to serve as advisors and consultants. And frankly, the, those people have not told an honest story. And when they get like a, the Martin Harrell study results, they keep it from the public. In other words, the ones where that told us that was the off-medication group in the schizophrenia group that did so much better. So that's the problem, really, is that... Um, uh, we, we don't have honest storytelling in, in this in this society that could drive real evidence-based use of these meds. And I do believe they have a use. I mean, they certainly have a use over the short term, and some people do well on them long term. But the, the evidence certainly does not support um, the incautious use and the long-term use for so many people that that is the practice today. 
Well, un unfortunately, Robert, we don't have time to go into s some of the solutions you see going on around the world and also the ways in which some of the studies are actually manipulated to, to produce certain results. But um, if people wanted to find out more about your book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, do you have a website people could go to? Yeah, the website, probably the best one is madinamerica.com. So that's M-A-D-I-N-A-M-E-R-I-C-A.com. And there's even, you know, there's documents related to Anatomy of an Epidemic. In an earlier book I wrote called Mad in America, um, there's sort of an outline of the book, and there's some blogging being done there, so they can get a good sense throughout the book from there. Is there, uh, do you have some final thoughts for our listeners, maybe some people who are either considering um, medications or, or oh, really, who, who may be on them? Yeah, yeah, final thought, this is really important. This book and this interview, it's not meant in any way to provide information that will lead a medical decision. I mean, in other words, nobody should uh, read this book or hear this interview and say, oh, I want to go off my medication. That's a choice that, you know, an individual has to make and hopefully an individual can make with, uh, in consultation with a physician. What, what the book's really meant to say to our society is our current system of care working? Is it helping people get well? Is it working for us as a society? And all the data says it's not at all. The rising disability numbers, you've got, uh, you've got early death problems with people so treated. Um, so what the data is telling us and what I think anatomy of an epidemic is telling us I and mean, what the book does is saying we, the American society, really need to rethink this paradigm of care and, and figure out sort of a new paradigm of care that can really help people get well. It was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. We're talking today with Robert Whitaker, science writer and author of Anatomy of an Epidemic. If you missed part of today's program, later today or tomorrow, you can go to kboo.fm backslash healthwatch and listen to it online or download it. Next week, I'll be back with uh, ecologist and author Sandra Steingraber about her new book, Raising Elijah. And coming up next on the radio zine is Women's Coffee House, a program of music and poetry from 1977 from the Pacifica Archives with a young Alice Walker reading her poetry. Stay tuned for that and more of the Radio Zine.